Book part nine. Here we are. The weirdest thing ever, I just listened to the end of book part eight to find out where I left off. That was a weird ending, huh? All I said was, good idea, mom. I don't know what happened, but anyhow, here we are. Book part nine um, in Dusseldorf, Germany. I spent, I think, four days in the hospital with my uh, one-month-old baby and was brought to my husband Benjamin's mother's house. Her name is Frauke. I'm assuming she must have been about 45 or 50 at the time, probably 50. She seemed really, you know, you know what it's like when you're 20, everybody seems old, but in looking back, she wasn't old. She was just very correct German. I mean, apparently she has an artistic flair, but, um, she does not use any political correctness whatsoever, which is a good thing, I suppose. But she had a very blunt way of saying things. Like if you made any kind of mistake, she let you know about it right away in the rudest possible way. And I can't stress this fact enough. I didn't speak German yet. So that was held against me all day, every day. And it was really annoying when everybody around me was speaking German and, and I couldn't understand what they were saying. They're looking at me and talking. So, you know, you know, they're talking about you when they're staring at you, but what the hell can you do about it? Nothing. So, um, I was really eager to learn the language, but nevertheless, I slept in one room with my mother-in-law. So she had a one room apartment, not a house. And there was a futon, which she slept on, and I guess a, a full-size bed slash couch in the same room. And that's where me and Jasmine slept. And Jasmine was nursing still, and babies nurse at night. And she would get really pissed when Jasmine was nursing. She'd be like, oh, oh, muss es so laut sein, which means does it have to be so loud? I'm like... Sorry, I mean, I don't know how to make her nurse quieter. So I was walking on eggshells. Um, well, after I got used to walking on eggshells with my Birkenstocks, Frauke showed me around Dusseldorf. It is such a clean, beautiful place. It's unbelievable. And they have a section of town called Eidtown or Eidstadt. Eidstadt, with the old part of town so beautiful it's what you imagine a real german town would look like you know and there's lots of lakes and oddly enough I, they have black swans in dusseldorf i apparently not many places have black swans i saw legit black swans in dusseldorf in the pond i mean in the lakes whatever i would love to just make books of all my pictures because that was my number one passion was photography and writing. Photography, I can't even talk. I'm so tired. Fuck. But the massage thing was just a hobby that, you know, dominated my life. But photography has always been my number one thing. I love taking pictures and sharing pictures and capturing moments of life and sharing it and stuff. So, um, I have lots of pictures of walking around Dusseldorf with Jasmine on my chest, you know, those little front baby carriers, a little kangaroo pouch. 
And um, so Frauke did take the time to show me around, but, and she doted on Jasmine. She loved Jasmine, but you could tell that she just found me to be annoying. She had no patience with the fact that I couldn't speak German. One cool thing about Frauke though, let me scroll it back. That time I first got to know her and found out that I was pregnant, I stayed over her house my last night in Germany before I flew back to America. And my flight was ridiculously early from Dusseldorf back to, I think it was uh, Atlanta. Anyhow, um, you know how she woke me up? Not an alarm clock. She woke me up by playing a record, not a cassette, no A-track tape or cassette, a, an actual album, The Rolling Stones' Satanic Majesty's Request. That was fucking cool, okay? She knew I loved the Stones, and apparently she loved the Stones. She had a copy of The Satanic Majesty's Request and played that record um, to wake me up. The song was In Another Land. She played that one, and then, you know. So, Falco was cool. It's just, um, there was, I would have loved to have been around someone who was very, very caring and nurturing and kind because I was going through a very uncomfortable time in my life. Like being a new mom is already stressful, but being in a place where you don't know anybody and you don't speak the language, there's no cell phones and internet and all that other stuff. I wish you could just try to imagine what that's like and by the way i'm not trying to get pity or sympathy i'm just letting you know how the fuck i got to where i am now all that stuff i went through all of those steps and weird twists and turns is what made me tough and strong enough to be who i am today so i wouldn't have changed a thing you know it all it all built me and it builds your life builds you Everything you've been through builds you, who you are. So I believe there's a book in everyone. This is just mine. I got to to explore Dusseldorf. And sometimes Ben would come from Berlin to visit. I got to sneeze. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and it was super fun. <clears throat> we didn't have any time alone, <clears throat> if you get my drift. Uh, but Frauke would take... Jasmine for a few hours and let me and Benjamin <clears throat> what the hell is happening with my voice believe it or not I have like a bit of bronchitis again still lingering from October November December January February March just never going away anyhow um Ben would show me around Dusseldorf with his friends we would go out to Edstadt and they would drink shitloads of beer and end up puking from too much beer and pizza and stuff. But it was so interesting to see Dusseldorf. I've never seen anything like it. It was so cool. Dusseldorf is very clean and small and quaint and safe. This is, we're talking September 89. <clears throat> I doubt Dusseldorf is still the same. In fact, I know it's not. The stuff I see online, it's not. But September 1989, it was paradise. It was so nice. I have a great memory, but sometimes when I'm recalling something that happened 35 years ago, 
the chronological order might be a bit off. So now I just remembered something about Dusseldorf. When I first went there, uh, I remember Benjamin introducing me to those friends, the snooty friends. However, one of them was very charming. His name was Michael Karen with a K. And he's a film producer. I mean, he was obviously like 20 or 21, but he was a budding film producer. And he kept telling Benjamin that I have a face for TV. I have a face that belongs in the movies and so on. So um, they asked me if I want to be in one of their music videos. So Michael, Karen, and Ben and were best friends with a guy named Yvonne. And he was in a band. I can't remember the name of the band. Um, but they sang about political things. And they wanted me to be the girl in their video, which reminds me of a Frank Zappa song called Be In My Video. So I was like, sure, why not? And they just, I had long blonde hair at the time with bangs. And they're like, just stand there next to the piano looking longingly. And then they just would tell me to stand here and stand there. I didn't have to talk or dance or anything. They just had me pose around the room. And that video was shown all over Germany on a show called Starloch. Star means star, you know, celebrity star. Loch means hole. Starloch. And so I was already on TV in Germany in freaking uh, 88. What was it, 88? Yeah, it was winter 88. This might have been right before I found out I was pregnant. Yeah, so anyhow, I just had to put that in there in the memories about Dusseldorf. And one night we all did play hide-and-go-seek around some kind of palace, which was really cool. That's what That was the coolest thing about Benjamin and his friends. When they wanted to go out and have fun, they played hide-and-seek. And it was refreshing, you know, rather than going to bars all the time and this and that. We played a lot of hide-and-seek. Hide and that was a memory I wanted to insert in here about Dusseldorf. And I wonder what Michael Karen is doing these days. See, I think I lived with Frauke until early September, or maybe even late September, 89. And um, then Benjamin magically found an apartment in Berlin. Funny, because we were both I mean, I had the money I earned selling Guatemalan stuff. But he was a student on his break, so he wasn't making any money. And um, he still found a place, and I, I coughed up the deposit. which was 1,500 Deutschmarks. Um, just, let's just say it's equivalent to dollars, okay? There's no point in me calculating money for you. 1,500 marks to move in plus the first month rent. So that's 3,000 altogether. I gave that money up that I earned on the Grateful Dead tour. And Benjamin wasn't the kind of guy that felt emasculated because of that. He was like, whatever, you know, that's cool. So he was busy renovating it, one bedroom apartment, ground floor, 
um, while I stayed with Frauke because he didn't want to bring us there while he's renovating. So I think Dusseldorf was like an eight-hour drive from Berlin, and I missed Benjamin desperately, not only because I needed help with the baby, but his mom was kind of mean. <laughs> now I could handle his mom. In fact, I do. I still talk to her, and I'm like, I put her right in her place in German if I have to. I'm, I talk to her probably more than my daughter because I feel bad that she's alone. Anyways, funny how things change. So, I mean, she was alone at the time she was divorced, but she was very active going out and stuff. And now she's older. She kind of gets ignored. Anyhow, um, I moved to Dusseldorf. Uh, Klaus, Benjamin's father, rented a big-ass van and moved some of our belongings and stuff um, from Dusseldorf to Berlin. A lot of people in Benjamin's family in Dusseldorf donated furniture and stuff, which was very nice. But when we arrived in the the apartment, I was like, uh, fucking not even close to being renovated. Like, it was really gross. I have pictures of it. It's hysterical. Um, but I nested very quickly and made it a home. It was not a nice apartment. However, it was in the nicest part of Berlin called Grunewald, which means green forest. Grun, Grun means green. Wald means forest. Grunewald. I believe it was a 3,000 acre forest across the street from our house. So it was perfect for taking the baby for a walk in the stroller. And uh, Frauke was really, really pissed that I got help from the government right away because Germans back then, I don't know if they do it now, but when you have a baby and you live in Germany, they take care of you so well. Unlike America, which they didn't help us at all. That's why I moved to Germany. They gave us so much money. They're just like, okay, you need, an, you need a washing machine. Here's money. You need a stroller. Here's money. You need whatever you need. Here's money. In fact, they have a thing called Erziehungsgeld, which means parent's money. Erziehungsgeld. For the first two years of a child's life, you get 800 marks a month just for, you know, expenses to take care of the baby. And the kid gets money. It's called Kindergeld. Kinder obviously means child. Kinder, children. Kindergeld. And they get like, I don't know, it was 150 a month until they're 18. Anyhow, I bought a really beautiful stroller. It's like an old-fashioned buggy, but it was so gorgeous. And Fraka was really mad. She's like, does everything have to be so extravagant and all this stuff? I'm like, apparently, you have to complain about everything. I mean, I couldn't ever say anything like that. I couldn't back talk, so I just swallowed it all. Sometimes she would just look at me and go, Bistubiza, which means, are you angry? I mean, she was really... I mean, I guess that's what mother, mother-in-laws are supposed to do, though, right? They're supposed to be fucking unpleasant. Um, got to meet all the German family, relatives, and stuff. Couldn't talk to anybody. They just nodded and smiled at me and stuff. Like, oh, isn't that cute? An American who can't speak German has a baby now from us, from our family. Um, yeah, got settled in in the apartment, and then immediately Benjamin started getting busy with school, immediately. 
So that means I was alone with the baby from 8 a.m. until 8 p.m. every day. Every day. 8 a.m., 8 p.m. Didn't know anybody. Couldn't speak the language. There were no cell phones. There was no internet. It was just a landline. And they had this weird thing attached to the phone. It's called units. However many units you use is what you would have to pay for the call. And there was like a, a, a counter attached to the phone. But it would count how many units you used during that phone call. And we weren't exactly making any money. So I was always like, oh my God, Ben, you just, you just spoke like 50 units to your friend. And so, you know, so we were really penny pinching. And um, lack of sleep, lack of money, lack of help. It was really not fun. So, plus there was no sleeping after 6 a.m. Because right below our apartment was the work room, the Arbeitszimmer. So the, how do you call it? What's the, the name of the person who takes care of the property? Not the landlord, but I don't know, the maintenance man, the super, the super. Little Polish guy, short, stout Polish dudes, him and a couple other workers. I swear to God, they would slam the, in the door 6 a.m. until 4 p.m. or 5 p.m., five days a week, Monday through Friday, without fail, in and out, in and out of that workroom, slam the door, and there was no talking to them because I couldn't speak the language. I don't speak Polish, I don't speak German, they don't speak English, but I would go shh out the window and they would just laugh like, Whatever, we have to work. I get it, yes, they have to work, but you know, that's a lot of money for rent and it's a snooty neighborhood. You'd think they would, um, maybe that's why that apartment was empty and Benjamin found it because nobody wants to live above that chaos. I eventually made friends with the little Polish guy, can't remember his name. However, um, he saw me and Jasmine, baby Jasmine, every day. So he started to, I guess, feel sorry for us. He was like, oh. Um, I remember one of the neighbors knocked on my door November 9th, 1989. It got dark really quickly, like at 4 p.m. All right. So it was probably 4.30 p.m. This old German lady who lived in my little block of apartments 79 Kunigs Alley. Actually, my address was Kunigs Alley 79. They put the street name first before the number. She came and knocked on my door. Frau Stein, Frau Stein, you must mitkommen. I'm like, what? Speak English, please. You must come. The, the wall came down. The wall came down. You have to come. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, let me grab a bottle, some diapers. I was using cotton diapers, by the way. I did everything super, super old school. Everything old school. Cotton diapers, no dryer. I don't think I've used a dryer since I lived with my mom or granddad. I never used dryers ever. Anyways, um, I got in the car with this lady we drove to the wall, parked, and it was crowded, super crowded. And there was some news cameras there. They were filming 
people literally driving and walking through a hole they kind of blew up in the wall. The looks on people's faces as they walked through that hole into West Germany was something I'll never forget. They looked like scared, shocked, happy. You know what? A lot of those people, turns out, abandoned their kids and just fled. They were like, didn't even want to take a chance that it, that the wall might be closed down again. So they just left their babies in the East and just fled. Not kidding. Look it up. I'm sure somebody documented it. That's how desperate people were to get the hell out of communist East Germany. And, uh, As usual, I'm doing my blog at ShopRite, and they're screaming over the loudspeaker. But I shall carry on. So I couldn't, I didn't have a camera, no camera phones back then. So I just was in the moment holding my baby, it was freezing. And Berlin has a different kind of cold. It's not just cold, it's wet cold penetrates your bones, freezing, so effing cold. So um, I went back the next day with Jasmine again and Benjamin, November 10th, 89. Ben thought it was really tacky that I was taking pictures. And I'm like, I don't care. I want to take pictures. I'm glad I did. Glad I did because I asked the East German guards to hold Jasmine just for a picture and they were laughing. They thought it was cute, especially since I didn't speak German and they don't speak English, so awkward. And I got pictures of the Trabbies, which is those shitty little cars I told you about. The Trabbies were pouring over the border. Um, wow. What a time to be in Berlin, so much action. And people were against the wall, chipping pieces of it off. I have a lot of little pieces of the wall, by the way. I'm not much of a materialistic person anymore. I have them, they're somewhere, I just don't care. But I do have them. Everyone was like, oh God, we gotta get a piece of this wall before it's completely taken down. So that was a hot commodity. People were, um, in a massive hurry to get pieces of the wall. I got a couple, I, have, I even have pictures of Benjamin with a hammer. He was really not happy about it, but I'm like, come on, pose for me. So he has a, a, a shit eating grin on his face. And I believe that summer, that next summer, I'm skipping ahead, but I'll scroll back. That next summer, Roger Waters had his wall concert. I paid 50 marks for my ticket because it was supposed to go to charity for the people from the East and stuff. So I saw that. That was in no man's land. That was like at Potsdamer Platz between the East German side of the wall and the West German wall. There was like this no man's land, which is now fucking more modern than Manhattan. Like they really, it was fascinating to see it 
before and after. Like that place I had to cross over to get in East Germany is now a fucking super modern uh, center, town center with with the Four Seasons and Grand Hyatt Hotel and the Ritz-Carlton and so on and, and a little mall and everything. But before there was landmines, people would lose their life if they tried to escape from the east to the west. Imagine if you made it over the East German side of the wall. You'd have to run your ass off across no man's land. And there's landmines and there's a lot, there was a lot of sniper towers. I saw them. There's towers where people with, you know, rifles or guns, whatever kind of guns they had, would be in those towers waiting for you to, you know, break a rule try to climb the wall or something, they'd shoot you immediately. Um, so, and the weirdest thing is, I believe I said it in book part eight, no matter how bad the wall was, Berlin was safer before the wall came down. As soon as the wall came down, a lot of, um, I mean, everybody came over from, from Romania and everywhere. God. God, it's the loudest place in the fucking world. Um, anyhow, yeah. Got to get hell out of shop right this is the only time i have to talk though without desmond feeling neglected so i've got to talk while i'm grocery shopping so let's not get too far off topic shell that was a novelty and a lot of my friends from america was sending me postcards saying they wanted to come visit there was no um, you know god life back then no internet, no cell phone. It was really different. Um, I had a Dr. Sears book, how, how to handle any ailments that Jasmine had. So anytime she got sick, I would quickly look it up. I eventually got a pediatrician for, um, for Jasmine. And, you know, they, they, oh God, they have the best doctors over there. It's unbelievable. And the best health care. I mean, they used to. I'm sure it's not the same now. Now the system has been completely um, exasperated. Is that a word? Always making up fucking words. The system has been exasperated. There's, they're, they've taken, a, they're taking care of all of Europe and Germany. In fact, they call it Germ Money. G-R, capital M, money. Germ Money. Everybody goes there who wants to be taken care of. So... There's that. I um, miss a lot of things about Germany, especially my daughter and my friends, but I'm glad I live back where I live now because life is so much easier. I mean, I did save all of those wet and poopy diapers in a bucket every day so that when Benjamin came home at 8 p.m., I was like, there you go. I saved some of the fun for you. I know that sounds mean, but it's not like he was bringing home the bacon. I was, you know, managing all that. 
so eventually I had to start thinking about ways to work because, you know, Jasmine was two and it really looked bad. Like the ship was thinking. So I had to get off my ass and um, traffic jam. <laughs> had to get a job. So that's when the unwinding started when I got a job. For sure. Because I just couldn't uh, not work. Not because I didn't want to spend time with Jasmine. It's just because I saw the ship sinking. We were heading for financial problems. And so my first job, I believe, was as soon as Benjamin would come home, I would get my roller skates, not blades, roller skates on. And I would head to the Kudam. So my street was called Kunix LA. This is King's, King's Alley. And it was really in the middle of nowhere. There was no bus stop. I mean, you'd have to walk like hmm, half a mile just to get to the bus stop. And the buses didn't run all night long. So I got in the habit of, okay, just hear me out. It's an extremely wealthy neighborhood. We had no business living in this neighborhood, by the way. It's ridiculous that we, poor as fuck, hippie slash students, live in this neighborhood. Hysterical. But I would go out on the street, put my thumb out, and I would always get picked up. I would... I got picked up in Rolls Royces, Mercedes, Jaguars. I remember the Rolls Royces because they look like those really old fashioned cars, Bentleys. It was never some shitty car that picked me up. And they're like, where are you going? I'm like, well, I'm trying to go to the Kudam. And if you actually went straight all the way down to the end of Koenigs Alley, which is a very long street, very long. I think the street must be three miles long or something, it's so long it's kind of attached to the main drag, the main shopping drag of West Berlin, which was the Kudam, short for Kurfürstendamm. So as long as I could get to the Kudam, I was in civilization. And I would skate around in summer and spring and sell the remainder of the Guatemalan bracelets. And I'd come home with, you know, 80, 90, 100 marks sometimes. Benjamin's like, wow, you know. And plus I was keeping fit. So I was making money and I was keeping fit. So I was bringing home the bacon. The thing is, we spent a lot of time apart, my husband and I, because I was alone with the baby 12 hours a day, Monday through Friday. But when he would come home, um, I would go out and try to make money. So that's how you end up drifting apart. If you don't have, if you're not financially secure, a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to have a baby. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. You're never ready. Okay. Unless you're marrying someone who's a millionaire, but then there's going to be pros and cons with that too. Because if you marry a millionaire, he's probably going to be gone all the time, managing that million. And they get a lot more offers than you can imagine. So there's pros and cons to everything. So I was selling the bracelets and uh, when I was home with Jasmine, I remember this, I had long hair, 
but I had the, a backpack with her now. I guess she was like, all right, I, she wasn't two. I know I just said she was two years old, but I skipped too far ahead. When Jasmine was about eight months old, she always wanted to be held and I needed my hands to wash dishes and cook and clean and stuff. So I had a little baby backpack and she would always grab my long hair and just yank, yank, yank it, yank it, like giddy up, giddy up. So one day when Benjamin came home, I said, take the baby. And I went to the local hairdressing salon, the closest one, which is a half a mile walk to the closest bus stop, like I said. And I just walked in and I said, cut it all off. And they said, what? You know, you have to imagine I walk in and I speak English and they think, they immediately think you're arrogant that you're speaking English instead of German. But I wasn't acting arrogant. I was just, you know, please cut it off. And they're like, oh, you have such nice hair. I'm like, no, no, you have to cut it off because my baby is pulling my hair all the time. So I got one of those German Hausfrau haircuts where it's like even shaved in the back. Like it's such a bob cut. It's a tilted bob. So it was like chin length in the front, but then it went diagonally up towards the back. And I was like, there, problem solved. Jasmine can no longer pull my hair. So that was like spring of 1990 when that happened. And then in the summer of 1990, that's when the Roger Waters thing happened. And that's when I started rollerblading and selling bracelets. And while I was on the Kudam selling bracelets, of course, um, I would, I was like a mobile shop. <laughs> you would, when you were following the dead and you were selling bracelets, you would take a long rectangular plywood like board and make slits in them so that you could put one end of the bracelet in the slit. I had boards of bracelets, one in each hand. Each board held about 30 bracelets. So I would have 60 bracelets on display at all times. And people in the tourist section of the Europa Center on the Kudam, love the bracelets, so I was making good money. And meeting tourists and people all day and every day, and one day a guy named Ferre Puda, F-E-R-E, with a little dash above the second E, Ferre Puda, P-O-U-D-A-T, with another little dot above the T. He was Persian, but French photographer. God, he must be passed by now. He was already old back then. But he was came up to me and said, oh, I would like to photograph you. I'm like, yeah, 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 buddy. Keep moving. Because, you know, that's a pickup line when you're a girl. Guys always want to photograph you, right? He's like, no, honestly, I am a very well-known photographer, blah, blah, blah. So he went and got his portfolio out of his car and brought it to me. And he literally had photographs he took of Cindy Crawford, and Linda Evangelistica and all that when he lived in Paris. And I'm like, okay, so I'm not tall. I, what's your angle here? I don't see. He's like, no, you just have interesting face. And he's like, you know something? I could get you work as a Madonna doppelganger. I'm like, I don't listen to her music whatsoever. I listened to Frank Zappa and Grateful Dead and the Beatles, so I don't know. He's like, no, no, I know an agency 
and they do shows at discotheques and clubs, variety show, like Elvis impersonator, Madonna impersonator, Elton John impersonator. I was like, mm hmm. So I was still thinking this guy's trying to pick me up. But his portfolio looked legit, and I gave him my number. And he picked me up one day, one day when Ben was home watching the baby, and I went to the agency with him. And they said, well, you're going to have to, you look, you look like her, but you're going to have to bleach your hair, pluck your eyebrows much, much thinner, and learn to lip sync. And I, you know what, back then you couldn't just turn on the internet and look at a Madonna video. You couldn't Google Madonna. And I didn't have any Madonna books. I sure as hell didn't have any Madonna VHS tapes. You know, so I was like, they're like, they offered 400 Deutschmarks per show. And they were offering three shows per week. And I was like, holy shit, that's a lot of money. We need that money. So I started going shopping, looking for Madonna videos at Videotechs. They didn't have Blockbuster, but they had, you know, video rental places. And I started renting every Madonna video I could find. I think it was the time of her Blonde Ambition tour because she had a very um, short bleach blonde bob. That's maybe when she was banging uh, Warren Beatty, the Dick Tracy movie, that era, when she had the gold pointy, super pointy bra corset. And she did the hottest version of Like a Virgin, Virgin I've ever seen on that Blonde Ambition tour. She came out on stage on a bed. All the blankets were red velvet, I think. And she had black dudes holding each corner of the bed and she pretended to masturbate on the bed. And she did like a virgin, but she did it really, really slow. And it was smoking. Wicked, wicked hot. Um, so I'm like, oh wow, that's, that's a look. And and I tried out my Madonna skills at the U.S. Navy barracks. And, oh yeah, by the way, I skipped something. While all that was happening, trying to learn how to do Madonna shit, I applied for a job at the American PX. Anyone who knows anything about the military knows that a PX is means post-exchange, I think. And that's where... American military people go shopping. Wherever they're based in the world, even in America, they go shopping at the PX. They get discounted stuff. And the main reason I wanted to work at the PX was, of course, to get my hands on American food. I was jonesing for American peanut butter and cereal and fucking... I met some American women through the Berlin chapter of La Leche League. I started meeting American moms. It was a once a month meeting and all the breastfeeding moms would show up. And there weren't just American military moms. I was meeting civil, civilian American moms that, that lived in Berlin for other reasons besides the military, just married to a German, this and that. So I started to meet other American moms. And I got jealous that 
a lot of them went shopping in the PX and got their hands on American food. So I applied at the PX and they hired me. So now I'm starting to look like Madonna. I got the short blonde wavy hair and the thin eyebrows because, um, you know, I was trying to get that Madonna thing going. So I worked in the American PX and they put me in charge of, get this, men's athletic shoes. So <laughs> that means I'm just going to be dealing with soldiers all day and not just American soldiers. All of the military was allowed to come shopping at the American PX. French soldiers, British soldiers, and American soldiers. I don't want my American friends here to feel neglected or anything, but um, I wasn't interested in American soldiers whatsoever. Well, first of all, their accent wasn't special to me because I'm American and I was married. So it was more fun to talk to the British soldiers with their accent and the French ones. And I increased sales in the men's athletic shoe department 30% while working there. There was a constant stream of soldiers coming in to my little section of the shoe department to buy shoes. <laughs> um, it was wicked fun. Ben was getting annoyed that um, it was taking up my weekends. I worked at the PX Saturdays and Sundays from like opening to close. <sighs> but I was making money and I could go to the PX and buy all of those American food that I missed so so badly, like maple syrup and I don't know, everything that you would need, baking soda, stuff that they just I couldn't find in Germany. Just just stuff that they don't have that we're used to. So basically all the money I was making at the PX, I was I mean, spending at at the commissary. That's what it was called, the commissary, which was right next to the PX. And anyways, I'm going to sign off now on book part nine because it's wicked late and I have to get Desmond to bed. But um, I'm going to pick up here where I'm working at the PX. And my co-writer, by the way, said, oh, my God, this book is enough for 10 books. It's too much already. But it's not, though. I can't shorten the story. I'm going to tell my story and whatever she feels right to stuff into the book, she can. So anyways, I will see you at book part 10. Mm -hmm.